time is ubiquitous. And the ubiquity is both a, it's a great kind of trove, but it's also a challenge for study because any word or concept that's that common likely is multivalent. And indeed, time has lots of different meanings for lots of different people. And because most of us find it quite intuitive to use time, and however we're, we see fit, it can be difficult to kind of unpack whether the meanings are shared or distinct. This episode focuses on the concept of time in the spatial imaginary of international relations. What constitutes time in global politics? What do we mean by it and how do we study it? Who is responsible for time creation? And to what extent do entities reconstruct temporal imaginaries within international relations? Welcome to the Diplomatic Academy The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode focuses on the concept of time and international relations. And for this topic, we are excited to host Dr. Andrew Holm, who is a senior lecturer in international relations at the School of Social Sciences at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, Dr. Holm, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. It's a great pleasure to have you on board. Thank you very much, Petros. It's an honor to be here. So your research focuses on the intersections of time, international relations, and from what I've read, also just war theory. Uh, you've previously worked as a research associate at the University of Glasgow and an adjunct lecturer at the Vanderbilt University, and you've also published in several journals. I've read quite a few of your articles, including you know um, uh, journals like International Studies Review, uh, the Security Dialogue, and you've uh, quoted it volumes on related research. And I have to be frank that your name often <laughs> pops up when one looks up international relations, time. Uh, I was I found out about through the concept of intellectual security, I was actually more, I was able to find out more about your work. I once responded to a friend's tweet, a, a mutual friend that we have commenting on how hooked I was on the interaction of time with ontological security and you responded underneath that once you see it you can't unsee it so before jumping into our questions could you please elaborate on what drew your attention to the concept of time sure uh, i couldn't i couldn't agree more petros once you once you see it once you know if you start looking um, it's hard it's hard to ignore it um, both explicit references to time and also kind of what you might think of as implicitly temporal claims uh, pepper the record of of current and you know past international politics to the point where I think if you took them out you know if we actually were able to ignore it you know there wouldn't be much much left there without them. How how did I start though? Um, I mean I guess I I owe a lot of it to two people. Uh, one is the kind of the community of the mind, and the other was my um, first graduate school mentor. So in terms of the community of the mind, I was reading Rob Walker's 1993 book, Inside Outside. And, you know, for, for those who've read it, um, they know how kind of provocative and compelling it is in a lot of ways. It's quite a dashing book. Um, for those of you who haven't read it, I would recommend giving it a try. But he talks a lot about the time and the spatial uh, imaginary of international relations. And again, it's, it's I think it's intentionally provocative and and so I was provoked. And um, then my mentor at the time and uh, was Brent Steele, uh, who was my master's supervisor. And I was talking with him about it. And he said, you know, that would make a good master's thesis topic um, because there hasn't been a whole lot done since since Walker wrote the book. 
and in some ways, Petros, I'm not sure that I realize it would last this long, but, um, you know, I just, as you said, I keep finding more, more time and temporality at work in international politics. And so just kind of cataloging that and trying to understand it has turned out to be a, a full-time job, um, and one that I enjoy, but, you know, it's, it was more a matter of just taking that kind of single idea and starting to look, look around at various elements of international relations and realizing it was there again, often hiding in plain sight or needing only just a little bit of unpacking to, to discover. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's a theme, I guess that also pops up in different kind of uh, rhetorics. I mean, I've seen mentions of time in both mainstream, but also more critical uh, analysis and theory. So when we approach it through an IR lens, uh, what is it that we study in terms of its constitution? What do we mean by time when it comes to IR and politics? That's a, it's a great question. And it's a really, it's kind of a, it's a thorny question. Because I think, well, you know, time is, is one of the most common, if not the most commonly used noun in the English language. And if you add to the actual word time, words like temporality, but also all the temp words we might think of as just having temporal content, right? So the days of the week and past, present and future history, you know, this moment is, uh, you know, a turning point for, for our nation, that kind of discourse. Time is ubiquitous and the ubiquity is both a, it's a great kind of trove, but it's also a challenge for study because it, any word or concept that's that common likely is multivalent and, and indeed time has lots of different meanings for lots of different people and because most of us find it mo quite intuitive to use time um, and however we're we see fit it's it can be difficult to kind of unpack whether the meanings are shared or distinct so this probably isn't exhaustive but i think that you can in international politics probably find at least three or four different ways in which time is often talked about explicitly First, it's a shape of change. It's a way of kind of describing and giving contour to different changes. So again, think about the progress of history or the idea that, um, you know, that there's an eternal return, um, either in international politics or just kind of um, human existence. Um, sometimes that gets reduced to the difference or the binary between linear and cyclical time, which I, I don't like that at all. So I would caution against that because there's way too much there hidden in the two spatial metaphors. Um, but nevertheless, you, you can find a lot of people, again, kind of gathering huge events or complex processes mm -hmm. underneath a, a kind of a temporal shape. And that, you know, it, that's quite powerful as a way to quickly communicate you know, what you mean about about these huge complex processes, which would otherwise, if you were to explicate them systematically, would take, you know, it would take a lot of words to do so. So if we just say that, you know, history is the march of reason, I find that a highly contentious claim, but you can find it throughout the international political literature and, and sometimes in political discourse. That very quickly tells you a lot about what the person thinks is happening in the world, how it links the past, present and future together, you know, and what it means uh, normatively. Uh, for humankind. The second way is um, you, you see people talking about time as a, a way to describe shared experience. We're in the same time or we're in this moment together. You know, this is a way of kind of binding individuals um, or at, uh, yeah, individuals or distinct agents together into a collective or community. And of course, if you start talking about that shared moment as a shared history, now you're, you know, you're well on your way to national collective identity and other forms of community. The third way is is as a metaphor, and so this is a bit tricky in that we use a lot of metaphors and a lot of spatial metaphors to describe time, 
I already mentioned linear and cyclical. Uh, but we also use time itself as a metaphor for other things. So, you know, if I say to you, um, you know, it's a shame the way things worked out. It just wasn't your time. You know, I don't think that most of us need to unpack that. But if we if we actually started to do so, it would turn out that what we meant by that is, you know, that the moment wasn't ripe or that you hadn't done enough things, uh, you know, to, to be ready to to seize that moment or just that events conspired against you. But again, in that sense, then time really needs to be unpacked because it's a metaphor that is, or an umbrella term to just help help us communicate things much more quickly. And then finally, time is often seen as an active force. The idea that whether it's history as just one damn thing after another, uh, where I think a lot more emphasis is on the damned as an cursed thing after another than we realize, or you can see it in international political theory, arguments about democracy as a way of ironing out things through time. The idea there is that you need democracy to sort of overcome the natural tendency of time towards disorder and chaos and decay and death. And there's a very long tradition of this in the intellectual lineage that sort of feeds into international relations and political theory. It stretches back millennia uh, to sort of Western monotheologies, but even further back than that to some of the, um, the sort of ancient systems of thought in the, in the Near East. And again, this is just the idea that time, whether it's an actually a god, and there are time gods if we look in the historical record, mm-hmm. or that it's just an abstract force in the world, um, always is working against us, right? And so we need reason or democracy or strong leadership or some other human invention or human agency to overcome it. So that would be, I think, four ways in which we find time at work in the constitution of, of international politics uh, and political life more generally. We've brought up the role of the individual, so agency here, that in, in part it is individuals, agents are responsible for this sort of interpretation or you know trying to justify the passage of time. But specifically what I'd like to hear is about is the reconstruction of temporary imaginaries within international relations and also within the discipline itself. When we look at time creation, is there a pattern? Who is responsible for uh, time creation in global politics? The the short answer, Petros, is everyone, but that's not a very useful answer because yeah. <laughs> everyone, then how do we start unpacking or parsing that? Um, the longer answer, I think, is that is we have to start with why. Why is everyone responsible? And um, I'm going to give some examples, I think, of different agents in a moment. But the kind of the why answer that, you know, why is everyone responsible for the creation of time? It's that um, I link all of this back to timing practices. And so when we, we often talk about time as, again, I mentioned an objective kind of thing out there in the world, right, or something separate from humans. But my kind of theoretical argument that I've been developing over the years is that the reason we do that is that that's just a, an artifact of symbolic language. And we're actually referring back to um, large scale timing practices or projects that groups are engaged in. And this is this draws heavily on the work of Norbert Elias, um, an underappreciated, I think, social theorist. And the idea, again, is, is just that it's much easier to talk about time as a, a substantive entity out there in the world than it is to unpack and be kind of reflexive and elaborate what we're trying to do, right? Because we're actually in the middle of trying to do that thing. And so, of course, in the same way that, you know, it's often difficult to describe what you're doing while you're doing it, it's difficult to just to talk about the timing while you're engaged in it. And so it's much easier to talk about time as, as something apart from us. 
Um, so I call those kind of timing symbols or timing indexicals, um, which is just indexicals is a is a kind of a clunky word, but it just means that when we find time referred to in in the discourse and practice of international politics, and when we find kind of time artifacts, whether they're clocks and calendars, they are timing mechanisms and then the question is who is using them and for what purpose? Why is it that they help coordinate or establish relations in a certain way and you know get events to unfold in one way rather than another? And again, that's a question of politics because that involves choices and you know the exercise of power and um, um, you know kind of hierarchical assessments of what matters most and what should happen next. Um, so because time works so well for that and because timing works at almost every level i mean you and i use timing um, to set this meeting we agreed to meet at at um, 1:30 in the afternoon on thursday um, but you know you can go scale that all the way up to you know parliaments talking about um you know with the, during the brexit debate the uk parliament talked a lot about the cliff edge of the brexit deadline that was pretty explicitly temporal um you know Another thing I've been studying is the rise of wartime in the 20th and 21st century. And this is a term, wartime, that doesn't really exist prior to the 20th century. We talked about, you, you can find references to times of war before that, but the idea that wartime is a separate temporal category that has definite beginnings and endings and certain features that distinguish it from, say, peacetime or normal politics, um, really emerges in the 20th century, but then comes to dominate international politics. Uh, through the Cold War and up into the 21st century. And the way we, you know, my, my kind of evidence for that is, of course, that the U.S., which is, depending on how you prefer to describe the U.S., the remaining global hegemon or the unipolar actor or just one of the most influential countries in the world in terms of its ability to deploy force and change um, all manners of international and regional dynamics, the U.S. has been on a permanent wartime footing since 9-11. Again, you, you mentioned or you said once you start looking, it's hard not to find it everywhere. And, and mm. I think a lot of the work that myself and a lot of other scholars in IR have begun doing is trying to both catalog where we find it, but then try to figure out how these things relate. Like you said, are there patterns or are there typologies to that? Um, so, you know, the question, it becomes a question of how and where, mm -hmm. so not who, everyone is using time or timing international politics in one way or the other, um, or being timed by others, and I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but the question in, in is not so much who, but how, where, and how far back do we need to trace to find that agency that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So if I could just provide three empirical examples. Um, so here's a, an example of an elite uh, an elite politician or elite political actor and it kind of almost immediately creating a new time. So this again is 9-11 uh, on 9-12 or maybe uh, it might have actually been in his first address to the nation, kind of his official address, which I think was the, was that the 21st of September in 2001. Um, George W. Bush used very explicit language. He said, freedom and fear are at war and our struggle begins with Al-Qaeda but doesn't end there. That is, uh, we now realize that was basically the inauguration of the war on terror, uh, which, you know, we have been told over and over, uh, more or less, will never really end because uh, terror is abstract and the U.S. and its allies uh, will root out terrorists wherever they may be and will never stop confronting them. Well, as long as terrorists keep popping up, then uh, this is kind of a whack-a-mole type of forever war. Um, so that's a, there's a, a pretty nicely packaged example of an elite polit 
elite political actor creating a new time uh, of war on the spot. But you can fast forward that then through the Obama and Trump administrations to uh, to the presidency of Joe Biden. I think a lot of your listeners will be have been aware of the drone strike that killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was the who succeeded Osama bin Laden as the leader of Al Qaeda. Uh, you know, you might have thought that killing the person behind the person behind the 9/11 attacks might have brought things to an end. But here's what Biden said about that strike. Uh, Zawahiri confirms a U.S. truth. We never give in, we never back down, and the U.S. will continue to demonstrate our resolve no matter how long it takes. So again, here we have the forever war kind of reconfirmed or started all over again, right? This is like winding the clock for another another generation of forever warring. And it, in case there was any doubt, right, uh, Biden then quoted Virgil, um, you know, a, a classical poet who's this is a the quote is from an inscription on a 9/11 memorial, and he again tied the Zawahiri strike to the fundamental truth, which was that, or his commitment, he called it, which was that no day shall erase the victims of 9/11 from the memory of time. So that's again, that's a fairly immediate and elite example. If you'd like a more kind of collective or community-based example, that's also a bit more proximate in that it doesn't necessarily immediately create new time, but in some ways, I think helps continually institutionalize embedded timing regimes. I mean, think about calendrical observances and celebrations of different nations or different polities. You know, the U.S. has its own calendar. Uh, Many countries are now sharing a Julian calendar in terms of the way the year is divided and when the year begins and ends. But onto that calendar, different polities attach different days of commemoration, right? So for me, coming from the U.S., I grew up celebrating the 4th of July and Veterans Day and Memorial Day. but, you know, for for those in Cyprus or in other countries, you will have different national days of remembrance and observance. Think about Victory Day in Russia, which was in, I think it was in May. And a lot of people were, of course, worried about what that might mean for the current conflict in Ukraine. Right. Would would Vladimir Putin announce a general mobilization on Victory Day in order to tie things neatly together uh, between the current invasion and the, you know, the heroic victory in World War Two? You know, any time that we all come together and observe these calendrical moments and celebrate them, uh, you know, we kind of we reimbue the nation with life, right? Um, through that idea of a shared history that this con- this polity or this group of otherwise individuals is moving through time together with a particular identity that again is based on that shared past, present, and future. Although you might also hear. Or I guess it would be good to note here that communities can also contest those kind of calendrical practices. So calendars are often a tool of the nation state, but not always. Two of the most prominent calendrical reforms of the modern era uh, failed and failed in countries where otherwise that, that otherwise kind of acquiesced or assented to wide scale sweeping reforms. So I'm thinking here of revolutionary France and revolutionary uh, Russia or the Soviet Union. Uh, both both the French and the Russian Revolution uh, tried to institute pretty radical calendar reforms without going into too much of the details. Uh, if you'd like the details, you can read um, you can read the work of Eviatar mm-hmm. Zerubavel in uh, sociology or Nomi Claire Lazar in, in political science, who's recently written a book uh, documenting some of these calendrical contests. Uh, but the, uh, the French Revolution tried to institute a 10-day week so instead of dividing your 31 or 30 day month into four and a quarter weeks, you would divide it into three more kind of symmetrical weeks. This was tied to the metric system. And of course, we know the metric system almost took over the world. 
But the French people revolted against this calendar and it failed after um, several years. And part of the reason was that it only had one day of rest for every 10 days, for every 10 day week. Uh, similarly, the Russian Revolution tried to introduce a continuous work week. This is so that the factories would never stop running, right? So the kind of traditional five days on, two days off for a weekend uh, meant that that's two days when, when you know, you're not working to meet your five-year plan or the kind of claims of the, of the socialist revolution. But the problem there was that it turned out that the way that they implemented it meant that uh, families didn't share the same day of rest. And so this was deeply destabilizing to um, smaller units, smaller collective units like the family. And so both of these things failed. And again, these are in countries where a lot of these other reform, a lot of other reforms around the revolutions succeeded, at least in the sense that uh, the population either assented, consented or acquiesced to them. Um, okay, finally, just a, a distant and very individual example of time creation in global politics. I would just say every instance where we use clocks, and I mentioned that already briefly, uh, but when we use clocks to arrange our lives, we're confirming uh, the power of a global technological invention uh, that was that's political right down to its core. It's just that we've kind of forgotten that, right? And we're not only further institutionalizing the practice of using the clock, but we're also symbolically confirming or at least kind of nodding to or implying the, the truth, and I would put that in scare quotes, of clock time as an objective natural measure, which it isn't. It's a social, technological, and political measure. But, you know, think about, think about where we are today. Uh, clock time is, is perhaps modernity's most global hegemon, or you might say its most hegemonic form of globalization. The whole earth is divided into 24 time zones. Um, you know, various elements of the internet and scientific communities now run on universal coordinated time. Almost everyone has either a watch or a clock on their phone or a clock on their computer. Um, and you and I who have never met and are meeting in different countries, different time zones can agree whether we have to use timeanddate.com or not, we can agree when to meet using the power of this clock. So that is extremely influential, right? It's ubiquitous, it's part of our life. Uh, so it might also seem then, and you ask about agency, it might seem like there's not a lot of agency in that, right? We use it as agents to get something else done, but not to create time. But we have to just, again, that here we have to trace back through the centuries to the invention and the perfection of clock time. And there you then find scientists and inventors, seafarers, but also kings and countries who were funding international competitions to you know, in the hopes that France or, uh, you know, England or later the U.S. would be the one, the country to finally develop the most reliable clock that could then help uh, seafaring vessels uh, navigate and, of course, then uh, also help coordinate all manner of, of social life. Um, and when they did, you, you then find clocks that work in the colonial imperial frontiers where this new time is completely alien to indigenous cultures. And so um, not only are clocks helping um, imperial powers navigate and conquer the interior of countries that they, uh, you know, of, of indigenous regions, uh, but they're also helping them subjugate and discipline the cultures into an entirely different way of life, uh, where things like efficiency, tardiness, promptitude, you know, and good time discipline become real moral measures of what, you know, of civilized and uncivilized. Hmm. 
you know, it's it's quite fascinating to see how rich of a uh, how richly this can be applied. I mean, we, we, you've talked about you brought in how embedded it can be into uh, memory politics, shared histories, uh, the common identities, and it's all found in in narratives as well. Even translated into legislation that's derived from. Uh, you know how pe- different people, different entities in general interpret and understand time, and how different civilizations have interacted with it. And uh, to, towards your very last uh, few remarks on clocks, uh, speaking of clocks, I, I mean this is something that I, I just uh, remembered during the. Uh, I, th- I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was during one opening presentation at the uh, European International Studies Association uh, Pan-European Conference a few weeks back um the uh, there was a mention of the uh, doomsday clock mm-hmm. and it got me thinking actually how to what extent can we actually use the concept of time to uh address different crises the the doomsday clock is a great example petros it's it's a great example in so many ways um both of using a at that by that point in the kind of the middle of the 20th century using a very common familiar symbol to help humanity reckon with an entirely new problem, which was the possibility of global annihilation, right, in a matter of minutes or hours um, using the atomic bomb. It's it's also, I think, an example, well, I, I should point out too, it's an example of some of the gender politics that we're seeing come out in, in a lot of um, disciplines, which is that the labor of, um, of women and women partners uh, or domestic partners goes unseen. So the doomsday clock, um, you know, it was kind of known as the invention of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, but it was actually one of the, I think it was one of the wives of the scientists who came up with the graphic design, uh, but then didn't receive credit for many years for that. It's also, a, it's also an example, I think, of how sometimes using um, intentionally emotive temporal symbols, like it's, you know, it's four minutes to midnight, and midnight means doomsday, um, is very, it's quite powerful, but if you fast forward from the invention of the doomsday clock to today, you can see that the, the bulletin struggles with just how much closer they can move things to midnight, right? And in some ways, it's not been successful in stimulating global attention or real shifts in global behavior, especially if we talk about climate change and, you know, the, the, the need to adapt huge um, aspects huge and, and long entrenched aspects of social life to meet the demands of climate change. So I think, you know, I, a lot of that then gets bound up or symbolized in the doomsday clock, both for better and worse. Um, more generally, I think time is there in almost every crisis. And again, it's often there explicitly and we don't need to look very hard to find it. We just need to be attentive to it. Uh, but it's also there implicitly, again, in in discussions of crisis or disorder or chaos or you know, claims about where right action might lead a country or a region or the international community in, in the future. But there aren't many crises, you know, without deadlines, ultimatums, um, a sense of time pressure felt by political decision makers. You know, these are all, again, pretty obvious, explicit temporal elements. Um, for just one example, during the July crisis of 1914, this is will be well known to a lot of students of, of international relations. Um, you know, Austria wanted to deliver an ultimatum to Serbia. It it needed to time the ultimatum to meet its harvest season. So it couldn't, uh, the Austrians said, we can't go to war before, I think it was July 25th. 
uh, because we have to wait till the harvest comes in. But then when they actually delivered the ultimatum, there's a lot of evidence that they specifically timed that ultimatum to arrive when the French premier and president were on a boat back from St. Petersburg to Paris. So they wouldn't receive the days would elapse. This is, of course, before, um, you know, instant communications uh, days would elapse before they would receive the telegraph. And so some of the time of that ultimatum would have already run off by the time they received it. Um, so this, again, is I think an example of where you can see time being deliberately deployed like a weapon or a tool to instigate or shape a crisis, to shape that sense of urgency that you see attending to many crises. Or you could look again at a more current example like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, you've got the implicit but pretty clearly temporal elements such as uh, Vladimir Putin and other Russian spokespeople saying that, that Ukraine has never existed. That's a clearly temporal claim. But then also the problem of general mobilization. So the fact that, you know, Russia can't replace its um, its fighting casualties at a quick enough rate without declaring a general mobilization. But Russian constitutional law says you can't declare a mobilization. Uh, you can't have a full mobilization without declaring war. And so in some ways, this is about the fact that because Putin has told the country that this is a special limited military operation with a very concrete goal, which is you know, denazifying Ukraine, um, he can't then say we're now in, at general war. He can't, he can't call for a, you know, he can't inaugurate a wartime. Um, on the Ukrainian side, of course, you see the, the frantic and really successful innovative effort to defend Kiev and survive those first uh, fairly shocking weeks of the war when it looked like the Russians were racing to try to take the capital. Um, the fact that that confounded the Russians because they thought it would fall in under three days. You, you know, you can see strategic analysts on all sides talking about the seasons, you know, the muddy season that slowed down the Russian advance. But now they, you know, the looming winter of 2022-23, um, you know, that might be sort of stalking the current Ukrainian advances back into the east of the country. Um, so, you know, it's it's I'm not sure if we can use the concept of time to solve conflicts or if we can. I don't think we're there yet as a discipline. Uh, but again, it's hard to imagine many of the most prominent conflicts unfolding without the use of time, uh, both as a, a resource and a weapon, and of course, also the influence of temporal considerations on all the actors. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I wouldn't say that we can actually use time to solve a uh, crisis as such, but it's it's a way of understanding different elements that fall within. I think it's it's a good analytical tool to look at other things beyond um, uh, you know, looking at it from a times-related lens, it's something that we, we, I think we should be doing more, which actually brings me to my next question. Uh, great. So um, as I've mentioned at the, at the beginning, because uh, I came across this concept as well when I was uh, looking at ontological security in international relations, and uh, one major component of uh, uh, ontological security is routinized tasks, right? So, and, uh, you know, discussing concepts like anxiety, resilience, and the routinely repetition of tasks. And I, I think, you know, this repetition, it, it ties in a very interesting way when we look at time, uh, especially if we link it to what you were earlier mentioning about these different narratives and how they can craft identities and they can bring people together or keep them apart. Do you think that, are there any specific ways that we can create more secure 
or insecure identities through the repetition of certain tasks across time and space? And if so, uh, what happens? Uh, how how can society itself better understand its position when it comes to within time, within politics? It's interesting that you frame it that way, Petros, because before, you know, before we started discussing this, you know, I had kind of scratched out some notes saying link this to ontological security. Um, the idea of repetition and identity is so strong there and, and the importance of repetition for timing, I think, is is quite vital. I mean, it, the way that timing spreads, wh- whatever the timing practice might be, uh, again, timing could be anything uh, involving the establishment of social relations or processes and then the kind of management and direction of those of those processes or relations so it's it's quite that's quite a broad definition of timing um, that means we can also it, it makes sense to talk about timing our identity right because of course our identity is is cannot be dissociated from our relations to others well so we're establishing those relations through you know an autobiography uh, whether that's explicit or just kind of self-understood about who we are and and who we are not only depends on who we aren't, right? So that self-other distinction, but also guides what we do. And a lot of what we do to kind of perform that identity, it helps to repeat key actions over and over, right? If those actions symbolically affirm our identity as, you know, um, uh, you know, a member of a society or perhaps, you know, an academic or a parent or a partner or, you know, an athlete, whatever the identity might be, the more we perform the actions that symbolically confirm that, then we, you know, we sort of entrench that identity. So again, you can look at that, and I think ontological security has done a great job of already highlighting and elaborating this uh, for for international relations. If you can can look for those routines and habits, and and remember that they're scalable, right? They're scalable right up from a single role that you or I might have, um, again, as a PhD student or an academic, or in this case, an interviewer and an interviewee but all the way up to the kind of the identity of a nation state. And again, those say those calendrical observances could be understood as routines. Um, then I think we have a, a really strong link and a, a huge kind of catalog of possible research into how political identities um, are constructed and reproduced over time, as you put it, and I would say through timing, through timing routines. Um, and we might then start to understand when and how they become insecure. So when those routines are disrupted or when the autobiography is challenged or when events happen that kind of confound the expectations of, of a certain identity about, you know, who they are and how they might behave. You know, I mentioned Brent Steele earlier as one of my earliest mentors. He's done a lot of work into how kind of shame discourse can be used to destabilize or to insecuritize ontological security, um, to destabilize identities. And I think what you see there is not, it can happen through the disruption of routine or the confounding of the autobiographical narrative and the kind of expectations and actions that it founds. And again, those are two different kind of temporal registers, right? Routine versus sort of a long narrative arc, but they work together. And I think the way that they work together is that the routine is often um, kind of part of that daily performance of the longer arc of narrative self-understanding. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I just have one last question, and I think this is a very interesting question uh, because very often we we talk about. I mean, it's it's very important to talk about the, these concepts and try to break it down for 
non-specialist audience as well. But going to a different kind of non-specialist audience, that would be the policymakers. How relevant do you think a policymaker would find uh, the concept of time and uh, whether they can understand its use uh, within international relations, within uh, foreign policy crafting and beyond that? I hope they would find it highly relevant and the reason for that is that almost all of them are already using it. So if they wanted to understand more about how the policy process actually unfolds or what they colleagues already are doing, um, they would need to attend more closely to the role of time and timing. Um, again, just as one example, I've done some work with Brian Beasley on Brexit and, and kind of policy making around Brexit. And we recently published an article in International Affairs about this um, uh, called Brexit's Timing Agents. And we looked uh, at a lot of Brexit debates, in both in Parliament and beyond, um, and both before and after the Brexit referendum in the UK, and identified at least three. I, I've now started to think there might be more, but there are three strong sort of forms or types, if you will, of timing agency at work in the Brexit debates. And, and again, I should stress these were through explicit temporal talk. Um, you know, one Labour Minister of Parliament accused the Conservative government of, and this is the quote, using time like a weapon. Um, again, there was almost everyone was talking about deadlines and cliff edges and combining those two metaphors together. Um, there was a lot of kind of, there was a blame game or, or a kind of a championing of the Brexit clock. So the blame game was, you know, who actually started the Brexit clock? Was it David Cameron or was it Theresa May? Because of course that it might have started too early and the government wasn't prepared. Uh, but then sometimes you would see conservative politicians in, in different, to different audiences saying, saying, I started the Brexit clock. And of course there it's a kind of a, it's a mark of honor. Um, so through that explicit temporal discourse, we found three types of agents and we named them timing entrepreneurs, timing apparatchiks and malcontemps. Uh, timing entrepreneurs are proposing a new way of timing, uh, the, in this case, the course of the British nation. Um, and so they're, they're proposing to kind of redirect the course of events, so the arc of history, if you like, um, but again, through establishing different processes, uh, or in this case, undoing relations in, you know, for instance, the, the UK's membership and the European Union. Apparatchiks just want things to run smoothly. Uh, so you might think of John Burkow, who was the Speaker of the House as an apparatchik. He is often quite literally just trying to keep people to time to keep their remarks under three minutes, I think it was, or two minutes. Uh, at one point, sort of hilariously, the, the actual parliament clock broke. And so he, you know, <laughs> he's, in the, he's in the parliamentary record speculating about how they might keep, keep the remarks to time. Um, but there's all, you know, you could also include in here independent ministers who weren't for or against Brexit. They just wanted to ensure that the ramifications of Brexit and the implementation was fully thought through so that it would be a smooth transition, right? And this is, again, about keeping the gears well-oiled, if you will. And then malcontents are, are ministers of parliament or elites or policymakers who are pushing back against the prevailing course of events. So, of course, Brexit supporters started as malcontents under the Cameron government. They were the ones, you know, decrying the role of the EU in British life and politics, and they were trying to undo the current state of, of affairs. But then once Brexit you know, became a thing, then you see labor parliamentarians uh, and SNP and other Brexit skeptics as the malcontents. And they're deliberately trying to resist you know, the march to Brexit, if you will, you know, to contest the government at every turn. And again, a lot of times doing that in explicitly 
temporal rhetoric. So that's just one instance of policymaking. It's only one policymaking body. Um, but again, if you took all the time talk out of the Brexit debates, there'd be almost no discussion of Brexit uh, that would make any sense. So I think policymakers were already using it. They, again, it's time is so intuitive. They were picking it up and using it without having to think too much about it. And they could even argue about um, you know, who starts the Brexit clock without actually reflecting on the, the logics and assumptions that go into that temporal claim. So I would think that and hope that there's a lot there for policymakers to appreciate about you know, helping them understand themselves and the process in which they spend much of their career engaged, um, you know, on a, on a kind of a deeper level. Uh, thank you. This is, this has been a very thought-provoking conversation. I thank you so much for your time and your insights. Uh, I hope our listeners as well have enjoyed this, listening to this episode, and I wish you all the best with uh, further trying to, you know, uh, situate uh, your research within this kind of theme. It's very uh, interesting, and I, I'd, I'd like to go into it myself a bit more in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Petros. Thanks for having me on, and uh, it's a real pleasure to speak with you today.